Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted today to have two of our residents being pre uh, presenting their work and their topics to us, and they are going to be introduced to us by Duck Doe. Duck probably needs no introduction, but he is an assistant professor of medicine in our department in the section of hospital medicine. He is an associate medical director in the Department of Care Management. Duck runs the um, oversight over our residency research programs and has done a great job with that, some of which you will hear now orally presented, and he'll tell you about the poster session, which will follow later. Um, the other thing you need to know about Duck is he holds the record of the number of recommendations for teaching awards. He is, I think, one shy of 80 now. So, uh, well done. So, if you interact with him in the near future, you could send in one more and he'd have a round number of 80. Anyway, Duck, come up and tell us uh, first about uh, Dr. Shaw and our and then our other speakers today. Thank you much for that nice um, introduction. Um, you know, before I begin, I just want to uh, publicly thank several people. About two and a half years ago, when our chairman, Dr. Rich Rostin, asked me to be part of the program, I was quite hesitant because I didn't know what I could contribute to the program. And so when I approached uh, Dr. Holly Freeman, our program director, to propose that maybe we should look at the research requirement as a career development instead, immediately he believed in this vision. So thank you both for your support and um, uh, belief there. And of course to Mindy Pickett and uh, Darcy Blanchard uh, for always helping me stay on top of things and truly for your genuine dedication to ensure our residents' uh, well-being and success. So thank you. And this morning we have two special presenters um, who represent our program strength and creativity. Um, it is truly an inspiration for me to see the upward career trajectory. And our first presenter is Dr. Sean Shaw. So Dr. Shaw received his, um, uh, he, he went, his undergraduate, I'm sorry, at the University of Miami, and then he completed his medical education at Florida State University College of Medicine. During his residency here, he received excellent in teaching awards, and his list of publication and presentation in GI is quite extensive. Um, a little bit about Sean, and that is he has a keen interest in medical journalism, and I was on service with him last year. And after uh, finishing the M2 together, I say, Sean, so what's next for you? He said, well, I'm going to go to Manhattan and uh, to work for ABC um, as their medical consultant for the new segment. And then when I found out that he matched at Cornell in Manhattan for his GI fellowship, uh, I thought, oh, watch out, Dr. Oz, you know, Dr. Shaw is coming to town. But before stepping into the uh, fellowship uh, program, he's going to step up to the podium and give his talk on portal bank thrombosis, Dr. Sean Shaw. Thank you, Dr. That's quite generous. Thank you, everyone, for coming today. It's, a, it's an absolute privilege to be here. Um, I hope today that I can give a talk a little bit about exploring portal vein thrombosis and cirrhotics. 
And through this exploring, really, the, both the clinical consequences and impacts, discussing a little bit of the controversy, and then presenting our study findings um, that Dr. Dixon and I kind of really designed and with the helps of Dr. Tor and Dr. Danani. And I hope to challenge the way that you look, perhaps, or provide you with a new framework of the way you think about portal vein thrombosis and cirrhotics um, by the end of the talk. So with that, a little bit of background. So portal vein thrombosis is defined in obstruction of the portal vein and or its tributaries, and specifically the splenic vein, the superior mesenteric vein, or the inferior mesenteric vein. And while associated with numerous underlying conditions, its significance truly lies in its ability to cause downstream hepatic decompensation and even death. A little bit more about its background. So portal vein has been considered a rare disorder in the developed countries, or in, developed, in the developed world, rather. But it's becoming increasingly recognized as a clin clinical entity. Reliable data on the incidence and prevalence of portal vein thrombosis in the general population, and specifically cirrhotics, is actually lacking. Early attempts to do such include autopsy data, and even including from the 1970s, with a prevalence of about 1%. However, in retrospective studies, Looking at specifically cirrhotics, the prevalence has re been reported to be as high as 20%, with increasing prevalence in those with greater disease or cirrhotic severity. Interestingly, actually, in fact, in transplant patients in the transplant population, the prevalence of PBT is thought to be as high as actually 30%. And while there actually remains much controversy about the clinical impact of PBT, which we'll dive into a little bit in the kind of in subsequent slides, it appears to increase, at least mechanistically, the rates of hepatic decompensation and potentially the risk of death. And the etiologies of, of portal vein thrombosis are actually rather diverse. And certainly while cirrhosis is a major culprit, PBTs are also commonly found in malignancy, and specifically hepatobiliary malignancy. So if we look at non-cirrhotics in patients without neoplasia, however, other risk factors include primary myeloproliferative disorders and factor deficiency, specifically AT3, protein C, and protein S deficiency, among other lesser-known culprits, including antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, um, pregnancy, oral contraceptive use, and certainly patients can have multiple concurrent risk factors. But if we were thinking specifically about cirrhotics here, there's been really great interest in trying to identify specific risk factors that predispose folks to portal vein thrombosis. So here Italian researchers, Zocco and colleagues in 2009, published a study in hepatology following 73 consecutive cirrhotic patients over a span of, of one year, and found that 12 patients actually developed de novo thrombosis during this time period. And they found that actually higher metal scores, lower platelet counts, lower circulating AT3, protein C, protein S, and low portal flow states were all independent risk factors for portal vein thrombosis formation, and all of these reached statistical significance. But it's, it's not really all that surprising, as you'd expect these biochemical imbalances in patients with more severe cirrhosis. So the question is, does PBT affect outcomes in cirrhotics? So while many would say, absolutely, no question, there are some that argue that PBT does not affect clinically relevant outcomes. More recently, French researchers Neri and colleagues published this prospective study using ultrasound screening among cirrhotics to look at the impact of portal vein, portal vein thrombosis formation. They looked at over 1,200 adults with cirrhosis without portal vein thrombosis who were enrolled in greater than 40 liver centers across France and Belgium with a mean follow-up time of 47 months. The cumulative incidence, rather, of portal vein thrombosis increased with every year, and at 5%, or five years, rather, was found to be around 
However, most of these PVTs were actually non-occlusive in nature, and many of them, many of them rather, resolving on their own um, in 70% of these patients. And the authors found and concluded that the development of portal vein thrombosis was not independently related to progression of liver disease or decompensation. But that said, the limitations of the study were great. Most of the patients had child's class A or less severe cirrhosis. A vast majority of these patients had non-occlusive portal vein thrombosis with resolution. And arguably, perhaps most importantly, there were no absolute numbers for mortality or individual rates or types of decompensation that were provided. Instead, the authors used univariate and multivariate analyses to look at the composite hepatic decompensation to show their findings. So the question is, is this enough to convince us that portal vein perhaps isn't really all that clinically relevant? So here's what we know. Not all patients with cirrhosis are equal. Similar to other chronic disease processes, cirrhosis is also a heterogeneous process. And we have to include both child's class A, child's class B, child's class C, so really the entire gamut of cirrhosis. It's clear that numerous local and systemic factors play a role in PVT formation, and the clinical impact of PVT and cirrhotics remains really a point of debate despite all of this. And as I alluded to, there's great limitations in a lot of the prior studies that have been done to look at the natural history and epidemiology of portal vein thrombosis, including the retrospective design, the small sample size, as well as the selection bias. And endpoints really need to account for hard outcomes, specifically mortality, not just decompensation. I think an interesting point here, um, and a study worth noting, is what's known as a pro-liver registry. And this is actually an ongoing cirrhotic registry that was started in actually early uh, 2012 by the Italian Society of Internal Medicine, really among cirrhotics, looking at PBT prevalence, um, and I think will be exciting um, in the years to come. So given this uncertainty about PBT's clinical impact on cirrhotics, I really became interested in looking at both the prevalence and clinical associations of portal vein thrombosis, but arguably most importantly, the risk of decompensation and particularly the mortality with portal vein thrombosis and cirrhotics. So using the national inpatient sample, which I'll get to in the next slide, our primary outcome was to assess the rates of decompensated liver disease in cirrhotics with portal vein thrombosis as compared to those without with the secondary outcome being to assess the differences in length of stay, in hospital mortality, and total charge in cirrhotics with PVT as compared to those without. So a little bit about the methods. So we utilize a national inpatient sample, which is actually the largest publicly all-payer, available rather, all-payer healthcare database in the United States. The NIS is actually maintained by the Healthcare Utilization Project and collects data from about 20% stratified sample of the U.S. community hospitals across 37 states and has been reliably used to estimate disease burden and outcomes. Each individual hospitalization is de-identified and maintained in the NIS as a unique entry with one primary discharge diagnosis and up to 14 secondary discharge diagnoses. Each entry also carries information on demographic details, so it includes age, sex, race, insurance status, primary and secondary procedures, hospitalization outcome, total charges, and length of stay. So naturally, you can see why this is really actually quite a useful database. So a little bit about data collection here. So our study population inclusion criteria included all patients over the age of 18 with either a primary or secondary discharge diagnosis of cirrhosis using IC9 codes. So this was further differentiated into alcoholic cirrhosis, non-alcoholic cirrhosis, and biliary cirrhosis. Our variables of interest was obviously portal vein thrombosis, or ICD-9 code 452 as well as cirrhosis-related complications, and particularly looking at portosystemic encephalopathy, abdominal ascites, and variceal bleeding. And each unique entry is 
age, sex, length of stay, inpatient mortality, total charge, and commonly associated diagnosis were also pulled out from the database. In terms of excluding criteria, only data with incomplete variables were thrown out. So if there was missing data for total charges, that was not included in the final analysis. So if we dive a little bit into the numbers, pulling from the 2012 national inpatient sample, there were over 7.2 million unweighted admissions. And if we pulled just those with cirrhosis, there were 100, about 116,000 admissions for cirrhosis. Broken up more neatly, there are about 50,000 for alcoholic cirrhosis, about 62,000 for non-alcoholic cirrhosis, and about 2,400 for biliary cirrhosis. And looking specifically at the cirrhotics with concurrent PVT, that was about 2,054, as opposed to 114,000 without evidence of PVT concurrent with cirrhosis. And if we look at those with non who had no, no evidence of cirrhosis, rather, and had PVTs, that number is 2,990. So the total number of portal vein thromboses in the entire national inpatient sample was 5,044. 2,054 in those with cirrhosis, and 2,090, rather, in those without evidence of cirrhosis. And so the PVT prevalence among all admissions was 0.1%, with the prevalence among cirrhotics being 1.8%. So if we look at those total of 5,044 portal vein thrombosis, about 40% had concurrence, either a primary or secondary discharge diagnosis of cirrhosis, whereas about another 40% had evidence of malignancy. The most common malignancy being hepatocellular carcinoma at about 17%, followed by pancreatic obiliary malignancy at 7%. Myeloid proliferative disorders actually was associated with about 3% of our portal vein thrombosis in the 2012 National Inpatient Sample. Looking at the baseline patient characteristics, if we look specifically at age, sex, race, and type of liver disease, which actually isn't depicted on the slide, there is no significant difference when comparing both cohorts, the cohort with cirrhosis with concurrent PVT and the cirrhosis without PVT. In, in, in respect to baseline patient characteristics. So this did not reach any sort of statistical significance. And looking a little bit at our primary and secondary outcomes, if we look at our primary outcomes, and specifically the rates of hepatic decompensation, particularly concurrent portosystemic encephalopathy, concurrent abdominal cytes, and concurrent gastrointestinal bleed, admissions for cirrhosis and PVT were associated with a statistically significant increase in the rates of each of these downstream sequence, or consequences, rather. Um, and again, it's, it's quite impressive that all of these actually reach statistical significance. Looking at some of the secondary outcomes, the admissions with cirrhosis and PVT also incurred greater average length of stay and inpatient mortality, with length, average length of stay in the cirrhosis with PVT cohort being eight days as compared to six days, respectively, and in-hospital mortality being 9% as compared to 5.6%, respectively. And perhaps most interesting out of this is the total cost of admission. So the average cost of admission in the cohort of cirrhosis with PVT was on average $30,000 greater than the cohort of cirrhosis without PVT. And this also actually reached statistical significance. So to summarize, we, our study found that the PVT prevalence among all admissions was 0.1%. PVT in hospitalized patients was strongly associated with underlying advanced liver disease with significant healthcare costs. In fact, the total cost of all admissions for portal vein thrombosis and cirrhotics was greater than $162 million. And so you can just imagine the type of impact that has on kind of healthcare utility here. And patients with cirrhosis and PBT had not only greater cirrhotic complications, but also greater inpatient mortality, length of stay, and overall inpatient costs. And it should be noted, and kind of a caveat here, that again, our study wasn't powered to evaluate causation, but more so as an association study.
So these are really excited findings for us, and to make the argument that perhaps PVT formation in cirrhotics appears to have significant adverse clinical consequences. But in thinking about what's next in the frontier to better understand the natural history of portal vein thrombosis among cirrhotics, there's certainly a great need for prospective multi-center studies to better evaluate whether PVT is an independent risk factor that leads to decompensated liver disease and death in cirrhotics. And this data is perhaps better understood than the liver transplant patients, but again, this is just taking the most severe of cirrhotics. What's also interesting, too, is the clinical significance of partial and non-inclusive thrombus is really not known. And in fact, a lot of the retrospective studies have looked and used non-inclusive thrombus, but we don't know really what the data is on inclusive thrombi. And perhaps really kind of an interesting facet here is really what the optimal management strategy is in the setting of detecting a portal anthrombus in cirrhotics. And this is something that Dr. Dixon is actually looking into currently as well, and whether utilizing low molecular weight heparin versus oral vitamin K antagonists. And also, interestingly enough, whether there's a role for the prophylaxis low molecular weight heparin. So with that, I hope I've given you kind of a new framework to think about portal vein thrombosis and cirrhotics. And I expect that we'll certainly see more studies trying to better explore just how impactful de novo thrombus formation can be in cirrhotics. So with that, just reviewing a little bit of the learning objectives, I hope that I've been able to review both the incidence as well as the prevalence of portal vein thrombosis and the risk factors associated with thrombus formation, giving you a little bit of flavor about the controversy surrounding the clinical implications of portal vein thrombosis in patients with cirrhosis, and allowed you to appreciate a little bit of the potential clinical consequences, consequences rather, and significant healthcare costs of portal vein thrombosis and cirrhotics. And I'd be remiss not to acknowledge Dr. Dixon, who's been an incredible source of support um, and mentor on this project. This is actually a, a study that we're actually presenting at DDW as an oral presentation next week in San Diego. So I'm incredibly thrilled, and a huge thank you to Dr. Dixon. Um, and a special thank you to Drs. Tor and Dinati for all their support um, and help with this project as well. Um, thank you so much. Any question for Sean? Harley could probably better answer that question. It was actually pretty easy. I mean, it's a, it's a you can actually purchase the database itself. Um, there's different years that are laid out by HCUP, and um, you can purchase different years. The latest year is still 2012, um, but it's actually fairly easy on the whole. I think the harder piece of it is um, being able to pull it into SPSS just because of the volume in the data. I mean, you're looking at over 7 million really data entries with numerous variables that extend out, um, so it tends to not work well in Excel. <laughs> um, as you can imagine, so it tends to be a little bit challenging in that regard, but it's actually fairly easy to get access to. So, so I'll, humble, <clears throat> I'll humble brag here a little bit. So, um, so uh, interestingly, this is a Schatzel uh, event. So, remember Schatzel and all the amazing research that he did? He ended up buying the um, a version of the NIS and then came to my office and said, I bought this thing and I can't figure out what to do with it and it looks really great. The data is designed to be used in um, one of the big statistical packages, SAS or SPSS or something like that, uh, or R for those of you that use these packages. Um, and those programs are all really great, but they're all incredibly, incredibly difficult to use and you really need to learn how to use them and it's not very easy. So um, uh, what I did was I took the database and actually um, put it into a web-based data 
system and then built a front end to it that allows residents to actually search against it. And so it's very, it's now incredibly easy to pull it out of it. So the goal, I think, is I've only done this for the 2012 NIS. I've got a copy of the 2011. I'm going to buy a copy of the 2013. And then there's an outpatient database of the same sort of thing. And I like right. that and get that online too so that people will be able to do data, big data research with both inpatient and outpatient data sets. Sean, you showed uh, an allusion to the idea of maybe prophylaxing certain cirrhotics against getting right. condition. Uh, just a very intriguing little piece there, and, and yet there's a very low incidence that happens even in the cirrhotics. Right. So we'd be treating a fair number of people to prevent that. But what's what's known a little bit more about that, or what's conceptually the thought that could be behind that? Yeah, so I think there's actually a, a single study that's looked at this and had a pretty low end on the whole, um, and they actually found a pretty significant decrease um, in the development of portal vein thrombus, and I think they looked at I think 10 to 15 patients really in this. Um, it'd be interesting, you know, I think that they looked at those who had, uh, I think, greater than child's class B or C cirrhosis, if I'm mistaken. Um, but I think you'd, it'd be interesting in to, to look at in certainly larger studies, but I think you'd have to almost target those who are perhaps at higher risk to kind of restratify them based on either independent risk factors. And we know a little bit about, you know, looking at perhaps their albumin, perhaps their synthetic function, and using that to help restratify these patients and determining who exactly would be good candidates for prophylaxis. But you're right, I think it's, it's, it's really kind of an intriguing point and it's, it's kind of a moving target here. I don't, Dr. Dixon, I don't know if you have anything else kind of to add on. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. Bila looked at this about seven, about 70 patients, they randomized them to uh, low molecular weight heparin prophylaxis versus none. And the interesting, what is not unexpected is the prophylaxis group had less portal main thrombosis, but it was a low incidence. And the, the really intriguing part of this was that there was less decompensation and less death in the patients that were treated with low molecular weight heparin. And uh, one of the theories is of progression of cirrhosis is microthrombi. Essentially, you get a cirrhotic, and some of the progression of liver disease is related to this coagulation of microthrombi uh, in, in the small vessels of the liver, and that's essentially causing hepatic extinction and then worsening of the liver disease. So we, we actually tried uh, with the University of Virginia group, Steve Caldwell uh, has a big interest in this, and we're pitching this to some of the factor 10A inhibitor groups, which uh, so far there's been a lot of unease. <laughs> we wanted to do it in the patients that had early portal vein thrombosis that were, were shown to be persistent. Steve actually wanted to do it like Vila did it in just uh, advanced liver disease patients without varices. So it's a, it's a pretty intriguing idea. Sure. Well, that was my question. Oh, great. <laughs> great. Thank you so much. Should we let it talk about Yeah, you sure enough. <clears throat> So in our program here, um, in terms of the research uh, requirement block for the residents, you know, we believe that it's just more than um, about mentorship, 
acquiring the skill set and uh, networking, but it's also about being creative and thinking outside the box. So speaking of which, our next uh, presenter, Dr. Mark O'Connor, certainly exemplifies these aspirational points. He graduated from Yale with a degree in applied mathematics and biology, and then completed his medical education at UMass. Um, Mark is also quite a musician. He plays a piano and a clarinet. Uh, so his talk today is on uh, blood transfusion. So you will soon appreciate how he combines his applied mathematics and his creativity and experience to make what appears to be in an ordinary uh, existent and extraordinary phenomenon. Um, Mark, I have to say that he's one of our best resident teachers here, and in the end of August, September, I believe, he will be uh, joining the hospice program at UMass. Dr. Mark O'Connor. Thank you, Dr. Doe. Um, when Dr. Doe asked me to give this talk, I was initially a little bit hesitant just because there's so much good research being done by so many of the residents here, so everyone should definitely go to the post session and check it out. Um, but Dr. Doe was pretty convincing, so here I am. <laughs> Brace yourselves. Uh, let's go. So I wanted to start off with a case description. Our patient is a young woman named Lucy, previously healthy, no past medical history, who de developed severe anemia. She ends up receiving four blood transfusions without any cross-matching. Um, random donors, we don't know her blood type, we don't know their blood type. Thankfully, she's able to tolerate the four transfusions without developing any hemolytic reaction or really any adverse reaction at all. You may be asking yourselves, why am I not presenting this at an M&M? <laughs> Who would be irresponsible enough to be the physician taking care of her and do this? Well, uh, the reason I'm not presenting this at an M&M is because this is a case of blood transfusion from the novel Dracula um, by Bram Stoker, published in 1897, before anyone had discovered the ABO blood group system or had any idea about cross-matching uh, blood transfusions. So I was reading this, talking about it with Dr. Dunbar, my mentor on this project, and we both came up with two uh, related questions. The first, most obvious question that a lot of you are probably thinking about is, would this actually work? Um, can I get a show of hands? Who thinks this would probably work? Some people. Who thinks this probably would not work? To give four completely non-matched units to a person without a typing screen. It seems like the majority would say it's probably not going to work, but there are a few people who say it might. All right. Second question would be, the fact that it does work in the book, can we use that fact to make inferences about the blood type that Lucy has? Based on the fact she tolerated all four transfusions, can we guess what her blood type is? Does anyone want to venture a guess? How many people think she might have type O blood? How many people think she has type A blood? Type B? How about type AB? Ooh, so we have a lot of votes for type AB blood, which is the universal recipient. All right, well, Dr. Dunbar and I uh, set out to answer this question. But before we do, I just want to give a little bit of historical background about the history of transfusion medicine. So in 1667, um, John Baptiste Dennis uh, undertook the first animal-to-human blood transfusion. Um, he was actually the personal physician to King Louis XIV, 
he did not use the monarch as his test subject. Um, in fact, the subject for the first transfusion was a 15-year-old boy with a persistent fever of unknown origin. Uh, the boy received a few ounces of lamb's blood um, and tolerated it. It's unclear whether he had any clinical benefit from it or not. Encouraged by this, Dennis then went on to attempt other transfusions with sheep's and uh, cow's blood, uh, which did not go so well. Um, his patients tended to tolerate the first transfusion, but then the second time developed rash, fever, hypotension, and two of them died. Um, and uh, Dr. Dennis then retired. Uh, <laughs> in retrospect, uh, his patients were developing serum sickness from second exposure to non-human proteins in the serum of other animals. That set the field of transfusion medicine back, um, and it wasn't until the 19th century uh, that someone attempted the first human-to-human -human blood transfusion. That was James Blundell. He was an English obstetrician. And in 1829, he did successfully transfuse blood into a woman with postpartum hemorrhage. Um, uh, the donor was uh, the woman's husband, and the uh, patient did well. For the 10 years prior to that transfusion, he had had a number of unsuccessful attempts. Uh, in fact, two of his first patients were dead by the time he was transfusing them um, and did not have a good outcome. <laughs> the book Dracula was published in 1897, so many decades later, by Bram Stoker who was one of seven children. In fact, three of his brothers were physicians, including one who was the president of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and was probably aware of some of the blood transfusions that were taking place, although it was still an experimental science because, as Blundell noticed, many of the patients suffered fever, headache, backache, and passed black urine, and no one really figured out why that was the case. Um, in retrospect, we now know that that's due to a hemolytic reaction uh, due to incompatible um, blood types. That was discovered in 1900 by an Austrian physician, Karl Landsteiner, who ended, on, ended up winning the Nobel Prize along with some of his colleagues for discovering the ABO uh, blood group antigens. Um, just as a brief review, everybody either has A antigens, B antigens on their blood cells, both or neither. And uh, these antigens resemble polysaccharides found on bacteria in the gut. So if your blood cells don't have a particular antigen, you are going to develop antibodies to those polysaccharides because your body is going to assume that they come from uh, gut bacteria. Um, thankfully, these antibodies are IgM antibodies that don't cross the placenta, or else pregnancy would be a nightmare. Um, just a little more. Um, information here. Um, the basic uh, O blood type has a four-carbohydrate antigen stuck onto the red blood cell. And the ABO gene is actually responsible for transferring a fifth carbohydrate onto that chain. It's a glucosal transferase enzyme. Uh, the A and B alleles process different sugars and add a different fifth sugar onto that chain. Um, in fact, the O allele is just the A allele with a frame shift mutation that doesn't do anything at all. And if you have one copy of each allele, you end up with an AB blood type. And just another quick review. Um, this is uh, a chart just showing uh, the universal donor versus the universal recipient. Um, people with blood type O um, can donate blood to anyone because they don't have any antigens on their blood cells that could be a problem. Um, whereas people with uh, type AB blood are the universal recipient because 
they um, don't have antibodies that would object to any type of blood cell. It's worth noting that uh, for transfusing platelets in plasma, the opposite is the case because what you're really doing is transfusing serum containing antibodies to a recipient uh, who has blood cells. So if you transfuse uh, someone type O blood into someone with, say, type A or type B blood, the antibodies you're transfusing are going to uh, cause hemolysis of the recipient's own cells. So in fact, um, in terms of cross-matching, platelets and plasma are the opposite. Um, plasma obviously being the worst, but platelets come with enough plasma around them that uh, you still run into trouble. So. Going back to our case, uh, the first question we asked was, would this work? What is the probability that Lucy could survive four transfusions without having a hemolytic reaction? We make the assumption that if she did get incompatible blood, she would have a hemolytic reaction. There are some people who uh, have tolerated non-matched transfusions in small amounts, but they tend to be old and immunosuppressed and have a lot going on clinically. She's young, healthy. I think it's a safe assumption that if we gave her a non-matched transfusion, she would have a reaction. To answer this question, we need to start off with some sort of pre-test probability. What is the chance she would have one type versus another? So to do that, we turn to um, the UK's national database of uh, registered blood donors to get a sense of the frequency of the different blood types. Um, as you can see, type O and type A blood is by far the most common type of blood to have, um, and B and AB are less common. The statistics in the United States are very similar, as is the case for most Caucasian populations. This doesn't quite hold true in India and China and non-Caucasian um, populations. So this is our pre-test probability. And then for each blood type, we wanted to calculate the chance of finding a compatible donor for that blood type, um, which is, uh, as you can see there, just a matter of um, you know, taking the percentage in the population of compatible donors and then raising it to the fourth power because there were four transfusions. And then if you multiply these together, you get a probability for having, say, type O blood and then getting four compatible donors, assuming you have type O blood. Adding all these together gives you the overall chance of tolerating four transfusions, and that comes out to be 31%. So from this, I think it's possible to conclude that while Van Helsing and Dracula has this great reputation, like most doctors, it's actually better to be lucky <laughs> than good because there was a 69% chance that his patient would have just crumped and probably died. But, you know, it worked out for him. So that's great. So the next question we asked ourselves was, what's Lucy's blood type? And I think everyone here said AB at the beginning because AB is the universal recipient. Um, so let's see. So here are the calculations that we did last time. Um, and again, we sort of have conditional probabilities for each blood type. Um, so to get a post-test probability, all you really need to do is take the conditional probability of that blood type and just divide it by the total probability that it would work, because we know that it did, in fact, work. So if you divide those probabilities by the 31% chance that things would actually work out, you end up getting um, the numbers that you see there. 
and finding that there's an 80 percent chance that Lucy's in fact type A, and there's only a 13 percent chance that she has type AB blood. This is a little surprising result, and I think it speaks to the importance of considering the pretest probability before making assumptions about a post-test probability, and that if you start with um, a frequency of AB blood that's really very low, it's somewhat of a zebra in the population. You know, just because you have some sort of test or diagnostic information does not mean that your post-test probability is going to be ridiculously high. The post-test probability goes up, but common things are common, and atypical presentations of common things are still more common than zebras. And I think this example demonstrates it pretty well. I was talking about this case with Harley yesterday, and we started to think about, well, how many transfusions would you need to do to actually decide that, yes, she's definitely AB? Because I think we'd all agree that if she tolerates 100 transfusions, she's probably a universal recipient. Um, so you can fairly easily do those calculations, which you can see here. Um, so looks like the crossing point is around 18, just because of the rarity of AB uh, blood types in the population. As you can see, in fact, since type A blood is fairly common, the probability initially actually goes up until about six transfusions and then starts to come down. Uh, clearly, um, type O goes down quickly, and type B is rare and goes down quite quickly as well. And eventually, type AB blood takes over, but it takes a good number of transfusions to get there. So uh, in conclusion, um, you know, when Dracula was published, no one understood this ABO system like we do now. Um, and the events described in the book, at most, would be successful only 31% of the time. Uh, and from the fact that they were successful, we can then conclude that Dracula's victim in the book likely had not type AB, but type A blood. Um, and then I suppose an additional conclusion would be that it actually is possible to get creative studies published because Dr. Dunbar and I did publish this uh, last year. Um, what are the implications of this research? Well, uh, a number of blood-sucking creatures, <laughs> not including vampires, have been shown to prefer certain blood types. So perhaps vampires might prefer type A blood as well. I just wanted to bring people's attention to mosquitoes. Uh, you can do experiments with mosquitoes where you put them in a box and stick a volunteer's arm in the box and see where the mosquitoes land. Uh, no volunteers were harmed during these experiments. They cut off the noses of the mosquitoes, so they actually can't bite people. But if you watch them really closely, you can see where they land. And one group did a study, um, and they found that a certain type of mosquitoes tended to significantly prefer people with type O blood compared to other blood types. This was the 80s albopictus mosquito, which is actually the mosquito that transmits Zika virus. Um, as far as I know, the study has not really been replicated, but if you have type O blood and are traveling to a Zika endemic area, uh, keep it in mind. Um, so I hope that I was able to accomplish some of the learning objectives today, which was to review the ABO blood group system um, and to also practice applying some basic principles of probability to a fairly unique case and to think a little bit about the meaning of pretest and post-test probability. Um, and I definitely wanted to acknowledge Nancy Dunbar, who uh, worked with me in this project and helped me along the entire uh, way trying to get this published. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>
So, uh, actually, I have a question. Uh, the question is perhaps more for Nancy who's hiding in the back. Yes, somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, there you are. There you are. Behind tall people here. So, uh, so how difficult was this to get published? I, I, I'd love to hear the story of how this got published. It's a very atypical study compared to the usual stuff that, uh, that gets done, and I'd love to hear about how that played out. Yeah, so I think that's, that's the, for me the most illustrative, you know, aspect of this case. I, I, I think if you are persistent and have something of quality, there is a home for it. You just have to not give up. <laughs> and we shopped this around a lot. We sent it to Transfusion, uh, which is the, the American journal in my field. And, and they promptly rejected it. Um, we tried some other pathology journals, rejections. Um, we got some feedback, actually, which meant that the reviewers were actually reading it and, and you know, giving us some comments, which was helpful. Um, but one of the things that I think really helped is, is I was able to go to an international meeting of blood bankers and just talk to people and say, hey, I've got this really great, you know, this great story, and you need to find a home for it. What would you recommend? And um, actually, a British colleague of mine said, "Oh, you should send it to you know some of these British journals. They're more they're more uh, willing to, to, to take these sort of humorous pieces." And um, I can't remember. We tried a, one British journal, and they had actually just recently changed their format. They used to publish a, a December issue that was a lot of pieces like this, and they had stopped doing that. So they said, "Oh, you know, we're not doing this anymore." Um, but then we had the bright idea to try the Irish Medical Journal because Graham Stoker was in fact Irish and his um, brother was, you know, a, a big wig in the Irish Medical Society. So that was maybe our fifth attempt. So don't give up. And network, talk to people you know in the field um, about it, get, get advice from other people, and, and be persistent. I, I know it was hard for Mark. He had to keep making revisions and keep writing letters and keep putting his head as well. But, but it's, it's good work, and it's, it is a nice contribution to the field, I think. And we actually even saw some press releases that this did generate a small amount of buzz um, <laughs> outside of the transmission community, because it is pretty novel and interesting and a nice application of science and um, math. So. so this was so much fun. And, and I think not only is it an interesting topic, but it's a great way to present um, the pretest, post-test problem that you really have to rely on the pretest to figure out where your post-test is, and, and that we don't as physicians do that. So I thought that was really neat. Uh, in, in a similar vein to Harley, I guess I'm just wondering, how did you come up with this project? It's so creative and inventive. Hmm. I love it. I think I was doing a one-week elective with Nancy on the blood bank, and I was also reading Dracula at around the same time. <laughs> and, you know, I said to her, um, you know, oh, I, I just read this scene from Dracula. You'll never believe it, but there's actually a blood transfusion there. And she said, oh, I know. I read that scene, too. I thought it was really interesting. And then we started talking about it, and here we are <laughs> a year later. Uh, another question about this. I remember years ago, it was sort of a big deal to know your blood type. But if we carried little cards, I don't know, I think it was in school or something, yes. we learned our types and then you carried it around to, to know it for whatever emergency might have befallen you, I guess. What is the state today? I mean, if, if people don't do that today. And so we have very rapid testing, right? You come in and if you need something, you test them rather quickly. <laughs> how, how does that work? I think, yeah, Nancy could yeah, probably answer that best. So no, we don't routinely test people, and we actually discourage routine testing of no medical benefit. So we really shouldn't type and screen someone unless they're in need of blood transfusion. 
um, because there are costs associated with that. Um, so it actually takes about an hour to do a typing screen. So it's not rapid, but what is rapid is availability of uncross-matched group O blood. So if you ever have a bleeding emergency, please do not hesitate to request uncross-matched blood because we have a lot of it and we're happy to give it to you and it's available within five minutes. It might be O positive, it might be O negative at our discretion, kind of based on inventory. But if you have a bleeding emergency, that's what you should ask for. And on June 1st, we actually have a new requirement that's mandated by regulatory um, agencies to protect our patients uh, from ABO incompatible transfusions. And that is, if your patient has never been typed in our system, and you send us a typing screen, we will be requesting a second separately drawn specimen to verify the ABO type before we issue cross-match compatible blood. Um, for your patient population, you should not see a big impact. The second test only takes about 20 minutes, so if all things come together, there should not be big delays. But know that that's to protect your patients from hemolytic transfusion reactions due to incompatible blood. And um, we will get some messaging about that in the next weeks about that practice change. Dr. McBee. Hi. Great talk. I have two questions. The first question is you were talking about pathogens or mosquitoes preferring certain blood types. So is there any evidence, and we know about sickle cell being protective against malaria, is there any evidence that pathogens have shaped what blood types are in this, uh, a particular ethnic groups or particular populations? That's my first question. The second question mm -hmm. is uh, Dracula a universal recipient? <laughs> I think I can answer the second question, and I'm going to say yes. <laughs> the first question, um, there's certainly a lot of evidence that malaria um, has uh, impacted, um, you know, blood antigens in West African populations. The ABO blood group system, uh, maybe a little less than some of the other blood groups. Maybe Nancy could comment a little bit more on that, because I know some of the, the minor antigens on bloods are certainly very affected by malaria mosquitoes. There, there, are, there's lots of work looking at associations with blood type and disease, and there are there are pathogen associations. So I think um, I know cholera it does have um, a tendency to be worse in certain blood types. I can't remember if O is protective or or not in that case, but um, but there are definitely um, associations, and they, they do shape. There is it, there is a reason why Southeast Asia, for example, has a higher prevalence of B and it may be malaria or other diseases in that part of the world. Do you know if Zika virus tends to affect typo? No. <laughs> I don't believe it's been studied. Um, you know, that, that mosquito also transmits dengue, and the study that I quoted was one that I found from uh, 12 years ago. I don't believe anyone has looked particularly at Zika virus um, affecting certain blood types. But it's a good question. One last thing I want to talk about Mark's talk is that um, we were talking about yesterday how and Nancy and our co colleagues out there just keep an eye on NPR, okay? 
So maybe he's going to try to shoot for uh, an angle there with NPR. So <laughs> you're here first. Um, the last thing I want to say is that um, I just hope that you appreciate what our resident here, our strength and the creativity, and to present today, illustrate that. And, and I thank you for coming out and supporting them. And one final thing is that at lunch um, around noon, uh, there will be lunch, and this resident will stand by the post to, to talk about the other research that we have for the rest of the class of 2016. So welcome and join us. And thanks again for uh, this morning. Yeah.